Well, hello and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're glad that you've found us and joining us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast dedicated and guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, questions on the Bible. Maybe a, a passage of scripture or a verse that's confused you. We'd like to delve into more. Maybe a biblical commentary on world events or maybe even events in your life and world, something you're going through and like a biblical perspective really any honest question you have as long as you know we're going to delve into the bible to find the answers that's what we're here to do on a reason for hope so we're very glad that you're joining us uh, to send in your questions to guide our show along today today it's just me and sean richards over here how are you doing i can hear the audience fleeing as we speak <laughs> no it's okay i'm still here yes. so yeah the first... <laughs> and yeah. discipleship works and this much exposure to pure and unfiltered Britishdom. It only took me 10 minutes of being in your presence to say America is weird. So. Yeah, that was the last thing uttered before the show started. America is weird. That was the conclusion of our conversation. And you said it, not me. Yep. So just, yeah. Yeah, well, it's good to see. I think it's the first time we've just been me and you on the show. So yeah, back to the usual format for numbers, but yeah, right. That's right. It used to just be the two before I came along and started hosting. So well, we're glad uh, once again that you're that joining us. There are various ways that you can do so. Um, again, as I mentioned, the reason for hope is live Monday through Friday, five to six p.m. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio, you're listening to our previous show, pre-recorded yesterday's show, basically. Um, but do uh, send your your questions in to our email address, which I'll share with you in a moment, and we can get to those questions on our next show. But on all the other platforms, we are live as can be. Keep in mind Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, uh, where we are broadcasting from. A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So if you keep that in mind when you're trying to find us, then it'll be easier to find us. So you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you go to the Watch Live tab right there, that will take you to our live page, and you'll see a countdown to our next show and a schedule, not only of Reason for Hope, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. And if we are live, you will see us uh, live right there, and there will be a chat function. You can sign up with a with an, a, a name and be part of the discussion there. The direct link for that is ccftucson.online.church, or again, just follow the link from our calvarychristianfellowship.com website. That's probably the easiest way to navigate there. We're on Facebook as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Look for us there on Facebook or facebook.com slash ccftucson. That's where you find us. And of course, chat function live video there as well, if that's your preference for joining us. We have an app as well. Again, if you look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson in your app store, or even on Roku and Apple TV or your mobile device, your iPhone, Android, iPad, all those kind of things, you'll find an app that you can uh, watch all of our broadcasts there as well. On YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. So if you're wanting to join us on YouTube, it's good to be uh, in mind of all these different platforms, in case one of them fails, sometimes things happen beyond our control. So it's good to know uh, another platform to jump onto. We always recommend falling back on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, as a home base there. But uh, we're on all these these channels simultaneously. On YouTube, the, the handle is youtube.com at uh, slash at a reason for hope 546. Or again, just search for a reason for hope. Look for that picture of Scott and Sean there in Israel and uh, you will find us there. You can follow our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, on Twitter, where he posts uh, highlights from the show and also updates on uh, prophetic things and world events. 
uh, commentary on news events from a biblical perspective, those kind of things. It's very interesting to follow along with him. His handle is at Scott R for H. That's Scott letter, uh, yes, letter R, number four, letter H. And you can follow him on Twitter. And last but not least, our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out at gmail.com. And again, if you listen to us on the radio, you'll want to use that email address as you're listening to our last show pre-recorded. But you can send us an email there um, anytime and we get to those on the show as well. Well, with all that being said, before we go any further, I think it'd be good if we pray. Would you like to provide a prayer for us, Sean? Okay. <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We want to invite you to be here as well to make this time not only worthwhile, but only that because your word was spoken. And we ask that your heart would be shared as well. Equip Dave and I to edify, exhort, and comfort your people. And to do so for your good pleasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, you, uh, I wasn't aware of this, Sean, but you inform me that they are about to work on a Passion of the Christ 2. Um, was, what was the tagline? Was it the, the resurrection? or mm-hmm. after? Yeah. Um, you had some things to share about that. Yeah, just uh, basically to recap, when the elder and I discussed this many years ago, uh, obviously this has been in the works as far as screenplay and scripts and so forth. I don't know if that has changed, but we thought we'd take the time to prepare you for that. And I'm not speaking the royal we. My father shares this sentiment as well. The original script and screenplay that Mel Gibson was planning on doing as a follow-up to his very meaningful and impactful portrayal of, even in a filtered sense, what Jesus went through historically on the cross the obviously little nitpicks and stuff that we make about a little bit too much of an emphasis on Mary and going into Roman Catholic tradition about Judas Iscariot hallucinating, being in this kind of reprobate state and wanting to repent, but because he just committed that sin that God and handed him over to the devil and that was just that. None of it, of course, was in the Bible, but we do appreciate the fact that some of the Bible got in there. Right. When it comes to this upcoming work, we can't say for certain because the screenplay starting now and we don't know what uh, changes have taken place from now in the many years since it was first pitched to the public. But essentially, we want you to all be prepared and informed for something that may or may not be showcased in the film. And it is also something that, unfortunately, many church circles and some uh, older music artists have tried to popularize in a claim about what Jesus went through during the three days and three nights he spent in the heart of the earth, referencing Mm. Ephesians chapter 4. The claim is that Jesus didn't just physically suffer for our sins on the cross, but that when he descended into the heart of the earth, that that was actually him going to capital H double hockey sticks hell, Hmm. and that he would suffer there for that three-year period, or three-year, three-day period of time, and then upon his resurrection showed that kind of like this is how popular music has portrayed it, being like Rocky getting up at the final round, knocking Satan's teeth in, taking the keys, and uh, ascending to heaven in glory. Nothing could be further from the truth, and we don't just want to dismiss it out of hand because it goes against our picture of what the resurrection was like or the nature of the afterlife. We want to make sure that anything that we take away as far as information about Jesus historically or the significance of what he did for us spiritually, mm-hmm. are both informed by more scripture, 
rather than less. So when it comes to this issue, the idea that Jesus suffered in hell after the cross, that despite his very poignant statement made, one of the last words that he uttered before giving up his spirit to the Father, was to telestai, meaning paid in full. It is translated in John chapter 19 as it is finished, that that is either in reference to what he was there to do mm-hmm. on the cross, or that was a false statement, and we can't really go one way or the other about it. We have to reconcile this doctrine with the plain statements of our Lord. Now, for those of you listening that either may hold this position or at least have sympathy towards it, we're not dismissing this out of hand because we think it sounds silly. Obviously, I wouldn't be doing any of you a service if I just took a sentence that Jesus said, put all of this weight and meaning and significance onto it, and said, therefore, your position's invalid. What we need to understand is that when Jesus went to the cross, the significance of not just what happened there physically, but spiritually, was in fact the full that was being paid. And the reason for that isn't just because of these, you know, take opinions for what they're worth, but these portrayals and music of Jesus suffering in hell is showing just how serious our sin was, or all these opinions that could maybe make it more dramatic. I don't know why Mel Gibson's movies tend to be so violent, but he does that well, and this would be an opportunity for him to do what he does best again. Mm -hmm. But here's the problem. We're interested in truth, regardless of the drama or the emotional impact. So where would the full severity of what Jesus went through on the cross be understood biblically as the total sufficiency for the wrath of God, that the wrath of God, not just the physical wrath of man, this is where sometimes the divisions are made, being inflicted on Jesus on the cross wasn't just him traveling to where he would pay for our sins by having the wrath of God poured out on him, but did that take place on the cross? And we can go to any of the synoptic gospels for this, but since we're reading it is finished in John chapter 19. I'd like to stay there just to spare us all the carpal tunnel and turning the pages. What's interesting about this is that when we're told about the incident, not only that Jesus was given a full Roman crucifixion, but what was interesting about the event as well is that we're told in every single one of the Gospels that from the sixth to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the face of the whole earth. Now, the significance of that has been not only verified historically through debates (laughs) between Christians and pagans asking, what was the significance of this? As if the event itself was assumed. Mm -hmm. They claimed it was a solar eclipse, but, and this is just a quick aside, history buff, so you'll have to humor me, the solar eclipse being the explanation as to why Jerusalem, if not everywhere, went dark during this period that Mm -hmm. Jesus was on the cross couldn't have been a solar eclipse because what day, ceremoniously, was Jesus put on the cross? It was Passover. You determine Passover by the first full moon of the Jewish New Year, the month of Nisan. Mm -hmm. So if that's how you know when historically Jesus was put in this position as the offering, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, what would determine that date? A full moon. Now, I don't know if you guys are experts as far as lunarology or whatever the field would be, but the reason why it appears as a full moon to us isn't because the 
entirety of sunlight is encapsulating the moon, the angle of the moon is shown to us showing total sunlight exposure. Mm. And then as the angle changes, it's either waxing or waning into a crescent or a gibbous. There's the terms for you. But when we experience an eclipse, where is the moon in relation to us? Not at, this is what a full moon would be, a 90 degree angle where you have total sun exposure mm. from the moon to the earth, but a replacement of right. positions and encapsulating and eclipsing of one over the other. So unless you want to theorize that we're in some Star Wars universe here where we have two moons instead of one, mm. you'd have to have one at a 90 degree angle and at a 180 degree angle between us and the sun. Right. That doesn't work. The explanation's invalid. Now, of course, they didn't have the same kind of telescope technology and stuff back yeah. then to know that, but it didn't fly as far as an explanation. What was the significance of the world going dark? Mm. And the reason is because in the book of Joel, chapter 2, noting the day of the Lord, a day of darkness and destruction, a mm -hmm. time of God's wrath, is described not just as a day where the sun would go dark and the moon did not give its light, mm. but specifically characterized in and before that chapter as a mark of the wrath of God. Mm. So when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all report the sun did not give its light, that's a callback. Mm. Specifically in Matthew goes into the most detail because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. They would have understood this was not just the physical sufferings of Jesus, but when hell was experienced. And this is where we have to understand our terms. The first thing that I teach our student ministry is, what does the word mean? What does the word Bible mean? What does the word prophets, prophet, prophecy? What does the dictionary start with before we start using it in a sentence? And if we're to understand hell, we're not talking about, you know, the center of the earth where it's, you know, the Elaine Bennis theology where it's hot and those caves and the ragged clothing and the heat. Yeah. No, it is a spiritual state of separation from God, mm. a cutting off of what James describes, the source of every good and perfect gift, noting that state of separation and isolation from God in the sense that you're benefiting from his presence and his glory. Yeah. That is what we would describe as hell, an existence separate from or in opposition to the glory of God rather than enjoying it. Mm -hmm. Now, if we then ask ourselves, why was or when did Jesus experience this if not going to some interdimensional place? We're told in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin that we would become the righteousness of God in him. When did that take place? Those who would argue in favor of what could potentially be this upcoming movie would say after the cross. Biblically, we have no precedent for that unless we assume it before reading, and hopefully you all know we're not fans of that handling of the Bible. Yeah. It would have happened when the sun went dark, in reference to the Old Testament, and we want to make sure that we have an informed view, not just of what the wrath of God is, but that it was sufficiently paid on the cross, because the right. crucifixion, even in of itself, is not to be underestimated for the amount of suffering our Lord went through. Mm -hmm. And intentionally so, not just to show how serious sin is, but to know that Jesus was and still is willing to suffer with us. And boy, do we put him through a bit. 
But understand that point. When you hear people that are going to put forward this kind of idea, you don't have to get into the arguments and debates of pagans. You have to get into the positions of the moon or know when Passover is and so forth. That might help over time. But what we want you all to remember is the Gospel of John, chapter 19 and verse 30, when Jesus said, it is finished. How does that fit into him saying, technically, to be continued, or I'll be back in three days, this is where it really gets bad. Everything that Jesus needed to experience physically and spiritually took place on the cross, and we note that from the sun going dark, signifying, according to Joel chapter 2 and others from the Old Testament, when the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. For him to have to suffer any more would be in direct contradiction from very plain statements in Hebrews 7 and 9, that he offered himself once for all sins, not twice in two categories. Yeah, right. So yes, if they've just started making this movie, we were saying it's probably going to take a couple of years for it to be completed. But I mean, what would you say to people, um, you know, watching? And you know, there's been a lot of Christian movies, a lot of, and I know I'm a visual person. You know, I guess the admonishment would be to just be discerning, right? Because yeah. sometimes we can see something visual and just like, oh, that's that must have been what it was. That must be true, you know. And I, you know, I that kind of person that seeing that kind of seeing is believing. But I guess just to be discer- discerning when this movie does come out of what is true, even though it's depicted a certain way. Yeah, and we all have five senses, some would argue more, but sight, touch, taste, smell, and hearing. All those are ways that we receive information or stimuli. And the more that you engage, the more you remember certain things. Mm -hmm. If you combine some or more, you become more accustomed to certain ones over others. You learn how you learn, is the way that I often put it with the kids. Yeah. It's always important to note not just that you're learning or even how you're learning, but what you're learning. What you're learning and yeah. that's where the discernment comes in. Yeah. If you are a visual learner, great, but be just as discerning if you are a audible learner like me or a, you know, touch-based, a writing-based learner, Mm -hmm. like those who do better taking notes, or a taste-based learner, people who remember things more when they're at a meal as opposed to when they're not, or a pneumatic learner, (laughs) Uh, people maybe lighting candles and so forth. They associate or remember smells a lot better than others. Mm -hmm. We understand that we learn at a different pace and by different means, but if we ask ourselves the question, what am I learning, not just that I'm learning, Anyone can memorize false information. The internet's proof of that. But if on the other hand we'd say, can I relate, receive, and properly take to heart and understand proper information, things that in the whole counsel of God's word carry weight. I'm sure it's a lot of heartache for people who have taken the time and energy and finance to produce songs centered around a doctrine that was shown to them to be false, and they say, I'd rather keep believing it's true yeah. than to think that time it's and a energy good was wasted. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that movie. I don't want to have to reconcile this with how the Trinity was misrepresented, right. say, for example, in The Shack, or how it was just so daintily presented, right. like, for example, in the God's Not Dead series, or, you know take for what you will, how they really watered down the severity of Lee Strobel's struggles in uh, Case for Christ. Mm. The whole point of emphasis is being this, in any art form, they're going to present art. <laughs> yeah. 
not doctrine. That's what we're here for. That's what scripture is here for. And that's why you all need to not just check up on what you see out there, but even what you're hearing here. Yeah. Everything right. is a call and opportunity for discernment. And again, a lot of years have passed between when we heard what Mel Gibson's original idea was for A Passion of the Christ too. Now that we know it's being put into screenplay, the call is not for red flags to use your you call it football, we call it soccer terms coming up, mm-hmm. but yellow flags. Mm-hmm. Note this as a warning, because we've heard very negative things, very false things, and very demeaning things to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Yeah. And the reason for that isn't because it goes against what we prefer Jesus to have gone through, it's what Scripture literally lays out that Jesus went through. Yeah, right. Well, thanks for sharing that, Sean, and um, I guess we can be praying as that movie's put together that God would divinely um, interfere and make it's such a power. I mean, it, everybody knows the passion of the Christ and it's, it was a very popular movie. And so it's definitely got a reach. And so praying that it's comes out accurate and something. Oh, yeah. Mel Gibson's a fantastic director and I yeah. know he has uh, art and a talent for this, but being an artist myself, I know that those things can be abused for the sake of art right. at the cost of truth. Right. You can tell a great story. Yep. But if it's not his story, then don't refer to it as yeah. the passion of the right. Christ, because right. that's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, very good. Well, thanks. Um, well, we've got some questions uh, that were left over from yesterday that we'll try and get to, and then I'll be checking the live ones coming in as well. But uh, Talon asked, is, um, a prayer done only th- is prayer only done through the Holy Spirit? If it's not a spirit-led or spirit-inspired prayer, is it still heard? by God, and I guess how do we distinguish those two things as well? Well, I guess if we're going to ask the question whether my prayers are heard or not, it's never, to the best of my knowledge at least, this is the problem with being live, because I can't just go to dead air and think about this for a minute or two. The passage that would come to mind is our prayers being hindered are in the context of those who would abuse or neglect marital responsibilities. If you're given the opportunity to minister to one of God's daughters, then you would, of course, have uh, things to sort out before talking to your father-in-law, so to speak, if you catch the illustration, of course. If on the other hand, we take a step back and go, so what is proper prayer? What you're probably thinking of is in reference to Romans chapter 8, that we do not know how to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. So when you think, was my prayer really that meaningful or effective? The Holy Spirit's got you covered. He's expressing our hearts before God in words that couldn't be put into language, just groanings, an expression of emotion down to the guttural level. So when we ask, oh, so that's true prayer, Spirit-led. No, it's Spirit-filtered. I think is what's being misunderstood there. Mm. When we, and again, uh, great Bible teachers at times in their life and in their walks with God, they've said, I just honestly had to come to God with my heart and all of its junk and just start cussing before the throne of God. And again, don't recommend that. That's quoting them. But they made the point of emphasis in saying God would rather have an honest conversation with you and Mm. deal with the garbage than for you to say, oh, Lord, Father of of all and Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee for the persecution at which I'm enduring, when in reality you just want to jack a few fools and need to know where to put that anger, if not in the fools. The point being made is that 
we need to understand the purpose of prayer isn't to say the right things before God. It's to receive the right things, which is done through the Spirit. If we ask, okay, the goal of prayer, is it to get what I want? No, it's for you to want what God wants, to align your will with God's, not to align his will with yours. So understanding then all of these principles, the idea isn't that prayer starts with the Spirit and then goes to the Father properly, and if it doesn't start with the Spirit, then it's an improper prayer, there's Mm -hmm. a formatting error, and then it just ends up blue screen in heaven. Now, we're talking about the fact that as we're praying to God, the Spirit is the one that makes that connection possible, Mm -hmm. that makes our heart worthy to be heard before the throne of God, and knows what to take out and what to leave in to get to the heart of the issue. And even if we don't know what to say, he knows our hearts as well as everything else in between so just keep in mind that god's not impeded by our incompetence i think that's the best way to put it yeah that when yeah that when we talk to him he not only hears what we're saying but also knows what we mean and in the oftentimes adage it's borderline sloganeering but it is still accurate so we'll repeat it there are three answers to prayer. Yes, no, and wait. Yep. Yes is something we love. No is something we can learn to live with. But yep. wait requires us to trust God's timing mm-hmm. as well as his, well, perhaps a broader perspective of our lives than our own. So if I ask, and this is again going to the foundation of your question, what is a proper prayer? It's an honest one. The question is, what's a prayer that's heard by God, it's the one you're willing to speak from the heart, maybe not even from your lips. We can see an example of one that was just spoken internally and very quickly, but from the heart in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, where he was literally put in a life and death situation before the king, and he prayed a prayer to the Lord God and then said, okay, here's my pitch meeting for Jerusalem's walls, and the rest, as we know, is fulfilled prophecy. I mean history, but I repeat myself. The point being made, though, is just that. Don't get concerned by the fact that you don't know always what to say, maybe even the fact you regret some of the things that you were saying. Hebrews 4 is very explicit that in the one who's meeting in between with us isn't just the spirit that solidifies our relationship with him, isn't just the son who is our great high priest, Mm -hmm. is not only able to empathize with our weaknesses, tempting always as we are yet without sin, but it was the Father's idea to establish this connection with you to begin with. If he wanted to hear from you, or if he rather, he didn't want to hear from you, there were things he didn't want to hear from you, he wouldn't have needed to start this in the first place. But since he did, since the whole of the Trinity is involved in this process, I think you could note that there's enough grace to cover over our mistakes, but also at the same time, enough openness for us to literally, as the author of Hebrews says, say anything, to come boldly before the throne of grace in time of need. Mm, Yeah, great, great point. Yeah, God knew what he was getting into. Yeah. He sure did. Great question, Taylan. Thank you for that. Um, Yari and Devin, thank you for joining us again and restating your questions. That's a great thing to do. Um, uh, I'm glad that you're with us to to hear the answers to these questions and that you restated them. That's always a great technique. If we don't get your question, join us the next day, restate them, kind of, you know, badger us a little bit. Or email, that way we have it in a nice or list. Or email, that's right. Yeah, so thank you for doing that. And I'm glad you're here to, to hear the answer to your questions, which we plan to get to next anyway. So Yari has a question regarding Deuteronomy uh, 22. 
Um, what is this passage talking about? Were women property in the Bible? And um, was that something that was condoned in the Bible, that women are property? Condoned, as opposed to what happened in history. Two very different things. Um, you said Deuteronomy 22. What were the verses 22. again? 22. I didn't have the... Oh, actually, I do have the verses. because when he, we I know the cross-reference in Exodus 22. I'll keep that thumbed, but I want to read his yeah. passage. 28 and 29... 22, 22, 28, 29 is the ones he is. And again, I'm not uh, delaying this so that you guys forget. I want to make sure that I read the passage itself because sometimes these things are summarized for us on websites with an agenda in mind and maybe Mm. don't have as much an idea of the truth as we would like. Right. So you said 28 through 29, correct? Yes. Deuteronomy 28. Yeah, is that the... Yeah, 22, 28, and 29. All right, this is fun. Uh, <laughs> 22, 28 through 29. All right, uh, here's the passage. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out, the man who lay with her shall give the young ma- woman's father 50 shekels of silver. Now, by modern reckoning, one silver shekel in ancient Israel's uh, accounting that's about 150 dollars or so Mm. so not a small price but that being said she shall be his wife because he has humbled her and he shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days and then it goes on to note a man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed so that makes sense as well this is a repeat if you guys remember the book of deuteronomy means second law And it's not introducing anything new. It's actually recapping the first four books and just telling them, here was God's standards. You guys blew it. And Mm -hmm. here's what we have to look forward to. My version, not the actual text. But this is a repeat of what was originally revealed at Mount Sinai in Exodus 22 and verse 16, where it says, if a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. And this is an also interesting part that's usually left out. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of the virgins. So what's really interesting about this is what we're essentially being given is the ancient and less scumbaggy equivalent of prenuptial agreements. Mm. Now, prenuptial agreements, for those of you who don't know, are agreements of how the finances are to be divided when or hopefully if a divorce were to take place. Mm -hmm. Now, in the ancient world where, note this, women were considered less than property, Mm -hmm. they were given a provision in what was called a dowry. Now, note, some cultures observed this, some didn't. But what the dowry's purpose was, wasn't to reduce a woman to a price tag, The price tag was meant to be high so that if the guy exercised his abuse of power Mm -hmm. and saying, I can just divorce you on a whim, like Muslim countries practice today, all you have to do is say talak, talak, talak three times, legally divorce before an Islamic court. And Mm -hmm. that's just the way it went. And in ancient Israel, it was essentially the same issue. That was the world they were living in. So what did God do? He said, if you compromise. You act like you're married, but you're not. Mm -hmm. There's sexual intercourse happening, what's called fornication. You either marry her or if the dad doesn't like you. And note, this is how it's usually presented. 
The Bible says that if a woman's raped, then she has to marry her rapist. That's how this passage is presented. Mm. Um, what dad's going to approve of that wedding? <laughs> I mean, you're a father. Would you want not to? this one? <laughs> no, no, not that one. Okay, no. so we can at least check one off the list. Yeah. If you're in a position and noting more context rather than less, what is the purpose of the dowry? It was welfare. When the woman's left and destitute, she would have that money set aside so that what? She wouldn't be left abandoned. Because note, when you're a virgin, marriage material, that was something highly prized and valued because it reflected character and commitment. Right. If on the other hand, you got remarried, not exactly the ideal situation, which is why the book of Ruth was so impactful. She had been married before and she was a Moabite, yet Boaz was such a man of integrity and good taste, that he said, I'm going to commit to this girl anyway. And voila, she's found in the messianic line. But the point being made is this. When we're asked about a passage, and it's presented to us as, the Bible says marry your rapist, and then you have to pay for her too. So a woman's property. That sounds terrible. Mm -hmm. Let's just take that at face value. Can you show me the word rape in either Deuteronomy 22 or in Exodus 22? which is what's being referenced. Right. The answer is you can't. You say, well, it's implied. Oh, we're using that word. Well, what does it mean for twenty or uh, 150 shekels of silver? Mm. Well, the parallel passage notes it's the bride price. Oh, marriage payments here. Mm. What's the purpose of the bride price? Oh, it's a dowry. A dowry has a purpose in ancient Israel to make a provision for women who, yes, were treated as if they were property, but not in God's country. If you're going to be a scumbag, the God, the law that God revealed would protect you and say, hey, if there's any compromise, you're not just, you know, as the modern day goes, the hookup culture didn't fly in Israel. Mm -hmm. You commit to the girl physically, you commit to her financially and spiritually, period. And if the dad doesn't like you, guess what? You're still paying for her because now she's not a virgin and that's going to make a layer of difficult conversations if she's going to marry someone who actually does have a spine. Mm. I say that without blinking, by the way. So the point being made is just that. Yari, when you're talking to someone who's an atheist, the first and most important thing to do is that if you're talking to them, not texting with them, not in a chat room with them, not on a Reddit subfeed, you're actually speaking to a human being mm -hmm. and they know it too, give them at least one chance to clarify terms by simply asking questions, where and when. If, and again, you don't have to have a working knowledge of what a dowry is, what the significance of the bride price is, that Deuteronomy means second law, and it's in reference to the first law revealed in Exodus 20 through 24, all that, <laughs> it needs to come down to where and when. Can you show me that that was not only what was presented, just in plain English, or Hebrew in this case, but how it was practiced mm -hmm. in Jewish history. Mm -hmm. Because the same deal is given, and we can probably take some time for this, I won't, but unless you ask, but the um, way that pastors are portrayed, you know, the Bible commands genocide against anyone who isn't Jewish. Where and when? Mm -hmm. Could you show me? Could we walk through that passage? Because I care about whether or not the God I'm following calls me to genocide. That's generally not a good yeah. thing. Right. But if on the other hand, that's been handed to you by, I won't refer to them the ways that I want to, people not interested in the truth, mm -hmm. 
that's not the kind of information you should be getting, not just about sacred text, but any text. Yeah. No, no, no texting from these kinds of people. On the other hand, you note, okay, what is the full point of application? What's the full point of basic presentation? What do these words mean? Because words mean things. And I think if your atheist friend is willing to agree with you on those terms, there are steps ahead of most atheists that would present this information without truth being set in a priority. We've got a list of plenty of examples. But the point being made is just that. If someone presents the Bible to you in this way, and I'm repeating the point so it's remembered, in a way where it sounds horrific, but maybe doesn't sound quite right, mm. tell them, ask them where and when. And if you can go through those things and say, you know, that's very interesting. I don't like that, if that's what it means. Could I look that up, maybe ask some people of ill repute but still sound speech to maybe walk us both through these things? And We've had people like Nina, for example, who brought an atheist friend of hers in the program, and he was what you could expect, but nonetheless still gave the time of day, Yeah, still took the 12 seconds or so to listen before they got belligerent. That's more than most, <laughs> and, we, and the Spirit can work with that. So make sure, Yari, know the information, be willing to ask good questions, and the best question is oftentimes just give me a source. Yeah. Show me an application. Yeah. Does that, in fact, make sense? The whole point, just to repeat and walk you through all of it so that it's remembered, is Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 22 are both speaking in this setting. If not rape, but any sexual contact between two people takes place and they aren't married, girl's a virgin, so obviously hasn't been married before, mm -hmm. you are to pay for it the way you would any bride. But if the dad doesn't like you, you're still paying for it mm -hmm. because you committed. Right. And now essentially you've just divorced her. That's the standard and that's the law. If you don't like it, fine, but don't mischaracterize it. And again, I'm speaking not to your atheist friend, but to the broad spectrum of anti-theism out there. Don't lie about my text. Don't misrepresent history in a hyperbolic state to prove your positions more virtuous because the last time I checked, even by both of our standards, maybe lying doesn't justify false information being propagated. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean that the thing that isn't liked, it should be not liked based on what it is, not what it isn't. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Yari. Thank you for that question and uh, for hanging in there with us over the last couple of days to get the answer to that. And thanks, Sean. Great stuff. A uh, question from Devin. What are the dangers of looking at pornography and self-gratifying? -grat Is there a spiritual aspect to this uh, along the lines of committing adultery in the heart? So the emphasis on the spiritual aspect of, of lust, uh, moving in lustful ways, viewing pornography, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, two passages to keep in mind, and I'm only so familiar with these because I have to apply it to myself. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this is in the second half of the chapter, Paul is speaking to an audience that was uh, exposed to more than porn. <laughs> Let's just say it that way. Uh, the ancient city of Corinth, it's a city in Greece, uh, was one of the ancient sites of one of the major temples to Aphrodite, and Aphrodite, or Venus to the Romans, was worshipped through child prostitution. There's no other way to put it. And the uh, 
I guess, priestesses and priests of that group, they were uh, very loose as far as who would be soliciting their services. And of course, in the ancient Roman world, sexual standards were very low. We have writings, I think it was, I actually don't know who it was. Uh, If you can give me a minute for that to stew back in my brain, I'll just keep talking until it comes to me. Mm -hmm. But Roman historians, nonetheless, uh, said that it was common around the time of Christ for a woman to exchange husbands every year. And a man was considered virtuous if he paid for his family, no matter how large it was, that there was an expectation for a man to not just have a wife to bear his legitimate children, but also a mistress to meet his needs. And of course, any number of trophy wives, basically to use the modern term for public appearances and so forth. That was just the norm. And in Roman pagan culture, obviously anything goes, since the gods had as loose standards as you can imagine, considering them your moral paragons as consequences. So when Paul is speaking to them, obviously introducing this Jewish concept of sex being more than just physical activity, he makes this point to them. And this is, of course, in the context of what we would apply today as pornography. But remember, he's speaking to a people who, to quote our assistant pastor, Boalette, uh, porned out if you will. Yeah. Starts in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. He quotes a Greek philosopher who uses this to justify any behavior. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods. This is choosing the logic of, well, I have a stomach, I have hunger, therefore I eat. Right. I have a libido, I have a way of activating and uh, engaging on those desires, Mm -hmm. therefore do it. It's the same logic, but notice what Paul says, but God will destroy both it and them. Judgment is something to be held into account here. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to say, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So he starts with purpose. There's a reason why we have our sexuality, and it's not just to run wild with it. And then note, the, and God both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. This is speaking of the future resurrection, the idea of being called to account for the things we've done in this life. Hmm. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is where the spiritual aspect comes in. Shall I then take the members of Christ, my body, and make them members of a harlot? This is speaking of just anyone that you're engaging with. Certainly not. Let it not even be a thought, he says. Or do you not know, this is what you're thinking of, that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2, the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now notice the distinction, first of all, before we get carried away. The union in spirit is between us and the Lord, not the prostitute. The union between us and the body could be with the prostitute, but ought not to be. Mm -hmm. There's the first distinction. There's not a spiritual connection when we, and it's advertised as such with good intentions, but unfortunately, again, a little less edgy on the truth. A desire to keep us away from something dangerous physically, the spiritual connotations are then emphasized. But what is the actual reality? If I'm spiritually joined to Christ, 
shouldn't I also consider my body to be spiritually joined to someone Christ would approve of? There is a distinction between physical and spiritual union. The spirit is exclusively with the Lord. The body could be (laughs) with a lot, but ought to be with one. And that's why he references what marriage and our sexuality were originally meant to be. And he notes in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Notice, not sexual, sexual immorality, Mm. the immoral use of our sexuality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins not against his own soul, remember, spiritual union with Christ, but against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Emphasis, the ongoing spiritual status between you and God. That doesn't change because you struggle with porn. (laughs) Let me emphasize that. But note this point. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Mm. That's the point. And then he goes on to define the moral use in the next three chapters. But the point being made in emphasis is this. When we're talking about the spiritual consequences of porn or self-gratification or anything that pertains to not God's plan for sexuality, and again, speaking from experience, it's an area we all struggle in because... That is something more prevalent, more personal, and more a part of our bodies because it literally is our bodies. That's the whole point. God gave us these desires. God wants to use these desires for his glory, but he also has the right to define them in the right way. Dave, you and I were single brothers in the Lord, Mm -hmm. and we understand that we glorify God in making him a higher priority than our drives. On the other hand, people who are married note they glorify God through the exclusivity of marriage and the exercise therein, all glorifying God. Now, is that always what we want? No. No, (laughs) not at all, in fact. In fact, very rarely. That's why it takes that ongoing fellowship with the Spirit to make an impact on the body, which is why the second passage is just as important. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 6. Hopefully that's been straightforward. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 also goes into this. This is in verse 3. This is the will of God. <laughs> Your sanctification to you, for you to be cleansed and set aside for a new purpose. Mm-hmm. How is that done? That you should abstain from, not sexual, sexual immorality. Right. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, referencing your body, in sanctification and in honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. And as we forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. Again, we see in our culture more directly than most that this is usually the first thing that's brought up. Well, that's just your opinion. You practice your lifestyle how you want. Let me practice how I want. Hey, you're not disagreeing with me. Mm-hmm. You're disagreeing with the one who designed this and yep. its purposes. So if that's not a priority to you, okay, that will be something to give an account for. But speaking brother to brother, that should not be something that we manipulate each other through, not something that we should misuse. Why? Because our bodies like our souls, are the Lord's. Mm. I need to make a point of emphasis that the two are distinct, 
not in the dualistic part that Peter Martin and I dealt with last Tuesday, but in the idea that when I sin in the body, it's also a sin against the Lord, just as much as in the soul. But if I then say, oh no, I looked at porn, does that mean that I'm filleting my soul or there's so little left of me that's been relinquished or handed away to the world that Christ has got like this little sliver? Trust me, there is no shortage of ways we can find ways to beat ourselves up when we mess up. But the idea is that in any context of sin, there are, of course, more serious consequences in the horizontal, but all the same vertical. Why? Because it's not glorifying God. Lying doesn't glorify God. Stealing doesn't glorify God. Cheating doesn't glorify God. Misusing our sexuality does not glorify God. If I were to cheat on a spouse, I'd first ask how I got married, but that's just a joke to give some levity here. That would have more long-term consequences than if I were in a position where I was single and just compromised. Mm. Now, someone just called themselves a Christian and committed this act as opposed to me as a pastor. There would be differences in it. Why? Because I know better. Mm -hmm. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and have lived out a life where I'm just going, in light of all that, (laughs) what a commitment. And the reason why we have such a high view of sexuality is the same reason why everyone does. Because we understand there is a severity to it. There is a deep and involved and an invested aspect to it that should give us this higher view of it and each other because it has the same consequences and impact on them. A commitment of body and soul, not in the distinction, Mm -hmm. but in understanding the value and the worth has been already paid. It's not a toy for us to abuse. It's something that Christ literally died and rose from the dead for, so that in light of that ownership, in light of that new management, if you will, I can live in light of those truths. Now then, what does this then apply to us? in any context of sin, what is the first and most important step? Keep in balance two more passages. I know I promised two, but I lied. I'll, I'll practice these verses here in a minute. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, and Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Shall we continue in sin then that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can I who died to sin live any longer in it? 1 John chapter 1, and verse 8, if I say that I have no sin, <laughs> I make him a liar, the truth is not in me. If right. I confess my sin, he, the one who matters, the one for whom my body belongs to, where was I? Chapter, chapter 1, verse 9, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just, brain fart, <laughs> to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then repeating the point, if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, extra credit if you want, begins with this follow-up. Brethren, I write to you that you may not sin. Being honest, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who cleanses us from all sins except porn. No, right, that's not what it says. So make sure that when you're understanding all these things in reality, it's keeping in a balanced and a properly informed perspective. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is serious, but as serious as anything else that put Jesus on the cross. Yes, I messed up, 
and dad, I recognize that you paid the price for it. Can I get back on my feet and deal with this properly? There's plenty of resources we can recommend to you. If you want a more personal walkthrough with it, I'd recommend Peter Martin's book, uh, Rescued in Sin, or Rooted in Sin, Rescued, Rescued by, by Love. Love. And that's available, again, for purchase on Amazon. Or if you attend our local fellowship, we can uh, we can help you out in the prices if you'd like. <laughs> um, we can maybe let you borrow a local copy, not to take away funds from or anything. I may get in He's trouble for here. that. We'll just give it to you for free. Yeah, but the point being made is just that. Uh, he, as I and as everyone else here, are male human beings. And like female human beings, we all have bodies. And so understanding that we don't always get it right, in fact, rarely do, this is a growth process and one that needs constant restoration and re- orientation with the promises of God rather than our emotions. Because note, when we mess up, happens often, it stinks. Because that has more implications and consequences for us than most other things, and everyone knows it. The world gets desensitized to it, but for some reason, we in the church never seem to shake it. Why? Because, as it's oftentimes the case, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts puts us in the... uh, the post-conversion Grinch state. The presence, they'll be destroyed, and I care. What's the deal? Mm-hmm. Our heart grew seven times that day. The point being made is that if you're in a position where you're struggling with these things, there are practical steps to do, but if you don't value Jesus more than those things, nothing is going to change. It's going to be replaced by something worse, at best, pride, and at, I guess, worst of the worst, you just fail and you don't overcome anything. You just keep getting trapped in this area of sin. And whether it's sex, whether it's gambling, whether it's greed, whether it's lying, whether it's kleptomania, I don't know, understand that your identity, your worth, your value, your source of hope and restoration, as well as an ongoing day-by-day victory or restoration is found in that, Mm -hmm. in the spirit that is in you. And if that's then what we build on this, then that's what's going to be most important. And I Remind this of myself as well as all those who are part of my accountability group. Every single day, one of two things are going to happen. God's power is going to be demonstrated to us in giving us a victory we couldn't accomplish on our own. Or his mercy is going to be demonstrated through us in understanding without him, we'd be toast and handed over to these things anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's a great question, Devin. I think it's important to emphasize as well when it comes to committing adultery in the heart and murder in the heart. The context of that was Jesus' um, words to the Pharisees who believed the inward didn't matter. They, they were you know, outwardly expressing religious things. Um, and hit, the point was Jesus was trying to show them, no, if you, if you, you know, look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. If you have hate in your heart to a brother, you've murdered them in your heart, that kind of thing. And so if you're aware of that inward, as Sean was talking about, It's not for us to beat ourselves up, but to be aware that God sees that inward man as well, and we really need a savior. The Pharisees thought that they they were good because they were outwardly outwardly good. They didn't go to Aphrodite's temples. They didn't look at porn. They didn't self-gratify, but they hated God when he showed up. Yep. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Yes, indeed. well, let's see. Do we have time for a quick question? I'm not Try sure. Me. We do, yeah. Uh, Devin asks also, uh, should we pray and fast before we make a decision? A Pentecostal pastor that he heard um, says that the Bible is not enough just to stop there. We need to go beyond. 
we need to pray and fast and do all That's these things. That's the line. Yes. If you want plenty of examples of people who modeled great fasting, again, you can recommend Daniel chapter 10 and chapter 1. But when it comes to the purpose of fasting, it's not to coerce God. When it comes to any encounter or meeting with God, we shouldn't seek things in addition to his word. We should be informed whatever we're doing through his word. If you're going to a church that would undermine or discount and dismiss God's revelation of himself, they're advertising to you a fake God at worst. At best, they're putting you in a position where you can be misled. You're going to have an uninformed and uncertain idea of, is God really in this or not? Because I couldn't know him from a bowl of cornflakes. Mm -hmm. The point being made is this. When it comes to our decisions in life, yes, prayer does serve a purpose because it aligns our hearts with God's and gives us that kind of perspective. Yes, fasting does serve a purpose because it's a reorienting of your priorities instead of physically satisfying a certain desire. It doesn't always have to be total abstinence from food for being fast here. It could just be taking this time where I would normally seek some sort of nourishment to seeking spiritual nourishment instead, studying his word, prayer, hint, hint. But the point being made is just that. If you have a teacher who would discount or dismiss God's word, find a better church because that's not a good one. Mm-hmm. If you got an opportunity to fast, understand it has a purpose, but it's not to coerce God or to automatically put you in a place where you'll make good decisions. Make sure that it's always to be in an informed and in alignment with God spiritually and emotionally. And it starts with this word, not in addition to it. Yeah. Great job, Sean. (laughs) Cool, what a show. Thank you so much for your questions and for being part of A Reason for Hope. You can uh, send us uh, an email at questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope at gmail.com. We will see you tomorrow, tomorrow's Friday, uh, last day of the week for us here at Reason for Hope, and we look forward to receiving your questions. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.